You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this 24th day of September 2012. I'd like to welcome you all back to the podcast and, of course, as always, encourage you to visit my website, CorbettReport.com, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos I've created and conducted over the past five years, all completely free and freely available for download from the website, thanks to the generosity and support of the listeners out there who make this all possible by subscribing to my weekly newsletter and or purchasing DVDs from The Corbett Report. And on that note, as many of you might have already seen from last Friday's edition of the radio program, I do have a brand new DVD that as I speak, is currently being burned off in preparation to be shipped out to the listeners out there who have put in their orders. It's called The Last Word, and it's a compilation of all seven editions of The Last Word video series that I created last year. And these are videos that were released online. They're on YouTube. They're on my homepage. So they are completely freely available for download. There's no obligation to buy anything in order to get this information. But your money does help support The Corbett Report and make this work possible. So your orders are appreciated. This is a video commentary series. It ranges in subjects uh, from independence to CCTV to utopia to overpopulation to snake oil. All sorts of different subjects covered in here. And it's, I think, some of the best work that I've done. So I'm excited to be getting these DVDs out to people. And as I say, as we speak, they are currently burning off in my DVD player. So I am getting the first batch ready. It should be ready to post out uh, later today for you stateside. That will be Tuesday morning here in Japan. So I will be getting that in the mail as quickly as possible to all of those who have placed their order. The link is right there on the front homepage of CorbettReport.com. There's also a link in the support uh, tab. Also under the support tab, there's a DVD tab. So there are many different places you can find this link so you can go and purchase this. It's 1300 Japanese yen. That's about $16.60 in US dollars at the moment, but that exchange rate fluctuates from day to day. But that price includes uh, the DVD and free shipping and handling anywhere in the world. So I hope you will take advantage of this. I hope that uh, this DVD is valuable to you. And if you're interested in a subscriber discount in my subscriber newsletter this week, this week only, there's a 33% discount on this uh, on this DVD. So it's 871 Japanese yen for subscribers to the Corbett Report newsletter. And if you subscribe anytime in this week, you can get your copy of that newsletter so that you can get the 33% discount. Other than that, all the DVDs are always 25% off for subscribers. So once again, subscribers get the discounts just for subscribing to the newsletter. And on that note, I've also done some uh, appearances over the last couple of weeks that you should know about. Uh, First of all, I was on the Financial Survival Network podcast last week with Kerry Lutz. So that is available from his website. I am also, of course, every week doing my weekly radio appearance with Dr. Stan Monteith on Radio Liberty and John Statmiller on the Tuesday edition of National Intel Report. 
and I try to tweet out my appearance whenever I'm on air or about to go on air. So if you follow me on twitter.com slash Corbett Report, you can stay up to date with all those appearances. And also this week, uh, this today, later today, for those of you stateside, I will be on the Jack Blood Show, DeadlineLive.info, on the No Agenda radio streams, and we'll be talking to Jack Blood. Also, I just recorded an interview for the Revelation Radio News podcast, so I'll put the link in there to their website so you can go check that out, and that interview should be being posted in the next couple of days, so you can stay tuned to their website for more on that. But as always today, we have a ton of information to go through, so let's get straight into it. The message is that there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. So when we do the best we can and we pull all this information together and, and we then say, well, that's basically what we see as the situation. That is really only the known knowns and the known unknowns. Ah, uh, rummy. Don't you just miss him sometimes? Welcome to episode 244 of the Corbett Report podcast, Secret Weapons Technology. Now that was, of course, the previous Secretary of Defense of the United States, Donald Rumsfeld, in his infamous speech about the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns, which is, well, pretty infamous by now because it was widely mocked, ridiculed, and uh, basically condemned at the time and made the butt of many jokes. Although, when you stop to think about it, of all of the things that Donald Rumsfeld deserves to be mocked, ridiculed, and degraded for, perhaps that quote isn't really one of them. Because when you stop to think about it, it actually does make sense. There are known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns in a wide variety of subjects and fields. And there are all sorts of things that we can say definitively that we know that we know or that we know that we don't know. And then there are the things that, hey, we don't know that we don't know. And it does sound very funny when I guess you string all the knowns and unknowns together in a, in a phrase like that. But it, rather than just a mockable, ridiculous phrase that has no meaning, it does have some relevance. And it has relevance to the very area in which Donald Rumsfeld was operating, of course, as head of the, the civilian head of the Department of Defense in the United States government. And that is obviously a position which is privy to a lot of information that you and I are not privy to, because uh, he gets to know about all the nice secret weapons technology that the Pentagon is tinkering with and working on. And it is in these types of secret programs, both weapons-related and others, that I would like to locate our, our task for today. It's to try to uncover some of what's going on, what's gone on in the past, what we can infer about what's happening right now, and where we can reasonably take this speculation. So let's start today by taking a look at a very interesting story that came out this summer and that I covered with James Evan Pilato on an episode of NewWorldNextWeek.com. The National Reconnaissance Office today launched U.S. spy satellite on a secret mission. This coming from Space.com and posted to my own CyberspaceWar.com. A new U.S. spy satellite launched into orbit Wednesday, today, again, June 20th, 2012, kicking off a clandestine national security mission for the National Reconnaissance Office. The NROL-38 Reconnaissance Spacecraft 
lifted off this morning from Cape Canaveral in Florida atop an Atlas V rocket. It marked a milestone flight for the rocket company, a partnership between Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Congratulations to the NRO and all the mission quotes from the guys running this. The Chantilly, Virginia-based NRO manages the design, construction, and operation of the United States Network of Intelligence Gathering Spy Satellites. Remember that intelligence gathering. ULA officials broadcast the initial liftoff this morning of the Atlas V rocket and spy satellite live via satellite and webcast, but cut off the video stream several minutes after the launch due to the classified nature of the mission. The NROL-38 mission will contribute toward the military's national defense program, though the details of how it will be will be kept under wraps. Few specifics of the satellite's design and purpose are publicly available, and the mission went into a media blackout shortly after liftoff. The reminder, the launch comes just days after the end of another secret government mission, the second flight of the Air Force's classified X-37B space plane. James, in the links I include on this post on Cyberspace War, to watch a video, you can kind of hear the sort of, you know, mission control voiceover and it just i i forget the line but just something about you know continuing our our vigilance from space for 50 years and it just sounds like something out of terminator and and skynet unfortunately so many stories these days do sound like something out of skynet but uh but i like these types of stories because they they put things into perspective for a lot of people out there who, uh, myself included, from time to time, we start to forget just how much it is that we have no clue about. We have no idea because we're simply not allowed to know what the government is doing behind our backs. So every now and then there's a story like this that, uh, yes, you can, you can know the existence of some sort of satellite that we're sending up, but you can't know anything about it, what it's doing, any of the design specs, and uh, basically it's just a big mystery. And so, uh, so that, I mean, can at least allow us to, to contemplate all of the technologies and things that, that are going on behind the scenes that we have zero clue about. And it helps to, uh, to put that into perspective uh, because th th we like to think that we have a, a grasp on what's happening in, in the governmental level. But of course, there's just so much happening under the cloak of national security that we're not allowed to know that it makes a calculation of any sort really quite impossible. And uh, of course, we've seen in, in the course of our lifetime the, the, the unveiling of things like the SR-71 or whatever, which back in its day was, was super secret technology. Well, just think about what they have now that we're not allowed to know about. So, so it does throw off any kind of uh, serious calculation that we could be making, because that's exactly what the national security state is designed to do. It's designed to hide and cover up this type of technology. But uh, I, I did notice uh, the headlines about the X-37B and its return after, I think, something like 400 and some odd days. Um, but still, uh, as far as I know, we don't really know anything about what that mission was about either, do we? No, and that's the thing. I think it basically comes down to we're only talking about this with you because there's no way for us to really hide a massive rocket launch or our, our retrieval and landing. So we'll tell you that hey, we launched one, and hey, one came back, but that's pretty much the long and short of it. Ah, uh, yes, and so we have the NRO launching a secret spy satellite that the public is not allowed to know anything about because it's secret. Well, it might be a spy satellite. At least that's what they're telling us. It really could have been anything that they were launching up there, but because of the media blackout and the secrecy surrounding the project... 
who knows? Who knows what it was or what it uh, what it what its mission was? Whether its mission has been completed or whether it's uh, still ongoing and what in what way it's being used? We do not know. We may never know. Maybe one day it will come out. Maybe it won't. But uh, at any rate, there are things going on behind the scenes that are very much part of the known unknowns. We know that something happened. We don't know what it was. And only a few privileged people in the positions of power are ever allowed to gain access to that knowledge. So it does put us in an interesting position because it is something that we do not often talk about or think about, but there are known unknowns. There are things that are hidden behind the wall of government secrecy that the public is not allowed to know anything about. And that poses an interesting conundrum, a problem for us here at this level, because that means that either we have to simply go along and just accept whatever happens and and dismiss, as with most people, oh, well, you're talking about things that, that haven't been admitted by the government, therefore it's conspiracy theory. So we can consciously acknowledge that there are things like these launches of these spy satellites, etc., that go on that we know nothing about, that we're not allowed to know anything about. But any suggestion that there's anything happening behind the scenes that we don't know about is treated as a conspiracy theory. So we can go along with that double-think mentality, or we can start to get into conjecture and speculation and listen to any supposed whistleblower that comes along and any supposed expert talking about whatever they want. Well, I don't know about you, but if I was in a position of power and government secrecy and I was into compartmentalization and all of the techniques that the intelligence agencies use to consolidate and propagate their power, I would be trying to implant fake stories in the media about this or that to get people distracted and to basically lead them down blind alleys and dead ends that go nowhere. So I think you know, it would be it would be in our best interest to be careful about what we speculate about and what information we take on board. But once again, we find ourselves in that uneasy position of having to deal with known unknowns. We do not know what we don't know. Well, let's uh, let's take a look at some some examples of this to put it in a historical perspective because again people can start launching into tirades about what types of secret weapons etc exist right now and there undoubtedly are secret weapons because we know from the history there has been so let's look at some of that history of secret weapons technology that was developed in secret and then released to the public after the fact many 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 decades after the fact in many cases and probably the best example of that are all the various secret weapons technologies that were developed in world war ii that we are only allowed to find out about now fly these planes, training of Hitler single BMW 003 jet engine, positioned on the top of the aircraft. This unusual position meant that complicated and heavy ducting could be eliminated. It also meant engines could be changed quickly in the field. The body of the Volkswagen was metal, but the simple wings were wooden and contained fuel tanks. Unusual for combat aircraft of the period, the HE-162 was fitted with an ejector seat for the pilot. Also rare, then, was the nosewheel undercarriage. The aircraft was armed with two large 20-millimeter cannons with 120 rounds per gun. One shell from these weapons could disintegrate a U.S. B-24 Liberator bomber. The Volkswagen had a maximum speed of 562 miles per hour and was faster than the ME-262. Deep under the mountains of central Germany, Speer built a vast, secret underground factory complex. Buried under millions of tons of solid rock, it is safe from Allied bombing. 
Here will be built three Nazi wonder weapons, the V-1 cruise missile, the V-2 rocket, and the Volksjager. The first HE-162 was rolled out and flown for the first time on December 6, 1944, reaching a speed of 522 miles per hour at 20,000 feet altitude. On December 10th, it is displayed to the Luftwaffe High Command with Flight Captain Peter at the controls. Tragedy occurs. The wooden wing disintegrates and the plane crashes, killing Peter. The cause is the poor quality glue used to construct the wing. But Speer would allow nothing to stand in the way of mass producing the Volksjager. In March 1945, the first 80 aircraft were completed. By the end of April, 200 more were ready. In May, the month the war ended, 500 Volksjager would have rolled off the assembly lines. And 1,000 per month would have been built starting June 1945, only six months after the first flight. Early in the war, British intelligence learned of a speech made by Hitler in Danzig, in which he warned that Germany was developing a weapon against which no defense would prevail. Another report came from a source in Oslo in Norway. This described the development of a powerful long-range rocket being constructed at a remote peninsula on the Baltic coast known as Pinamunda. Jones realized that if these reports were true, German scientists had begun to develop a whole new dimension in warfare one which could tip the balance of the conflict in favor of the Third Reich. The development and subsequent use of these weapons was one of the most closely guarded secrets of Hitler's Germany. And it had posed questions which have baffled historians ever since. How did Nazi scientists manage to perfect a weapon of such technical brilliance and sophistication? A weapon so far advanced that scientists in the United States and Great Britain considered its construction impossible. Why did Hitler become so confident that the rocket could win him the war? Did he have plans to arm the weapon not only with conventional explosives, but also with poison gas, deadly germs, or even an atomic bomb. Japanese suicide aircraft, the kamikazes, were among the most terrifying weapons of the Pacific War. But there was another Japanese weapon which presented a threat to mainland America. Balloons, loaded with bombs which rode the jet stream across the Pacific to deliver their deadly cargoes from Alaska to Mexico. The Japanese balloon bombers were, perhaps, the strangest secret weapon of the Second World War. It was not until the end of October 1944 that the Japanese were ready to release the second wave of balloons on their ocean-spanning voyage to the United States. Each flock of balloons, made of heavy parchment paper stuck together with vegetable glue, was designed to reach a height at which it would be carried towards America by the prevailing winds at a speed of between 100 and 200 miles per hour. 
The balloons carried incendiary and anti-personnel bombs and up to 36-pound sandbags. These were released successively by a tripping device actuated by a barometer whenever the balloon dropped below 30,000 feet. Directly underneath the balloon was a large insulated box containing a battery and beside it a demolition charge designed to explode after all the bombs had been dropped. Underneath this installation were the aneroid barometers which tripped off the ballast release mechanism. Each batch of bomb-carrying balloons was accompanied by one which transmitted radio signals, enabling the Japanese to check on the progress of the flock across the Pacific. Because they wanted to be certain of their successful arrival in America, these transmitter balloons were made of rubberized silk. The bombs were released after the last ballast bag had been dropped, the Japanese theory being that by this time the balloons would be over the American continent. The demolition charge was then supposed to destroy the balloon, concealing from the American air defences the nature of the threat flying from the other side of the Pacific. In theory at least, the incendiary bombs posed a real threat to the forest of the American Pacific seaboard. Milton Keynes, England. It's not the kind of place where we expect to get new information on real-life flying saucers. But after our recent report on disc-shaped aircraft in Canada, top-secret American saucer projects and Germany's development of craft like this during World War II, a sighting researcher received this letter from viewer D. Robin Stoll. A typesetter by trade, Stoll alerted us to this book. Brighter than a thousand suns, an authoritative history of the race to build the first atomic bomb. Stoll typeset the original manuscript nearly 40 years ago and never forgot this brief reference to a Nazi saucer that could outmaneuver any Allied aircraft. Four decades after publication, Stoll found a copy of the out-of-print reference book and confirmed what he had long remembered. The footnote describes German saucers that were 45 yards across, capable of reaching speeds over Mach 1 and climbing to an elevation of nearly 8 miles. Allow me to play devil's advocate. Well, yes, there were secret weapons technologies developed during wartime. Of course, that's to be the case. I mean, they're at war. They don't want the enemy to find out about their weapon systems. But when it comes to our current day and age, surely there's not that much more advanced technology being worked on by the Pentagon than, than there is available to the public. In fact, the, the most advanced technology on the planet is available to the consumer through the open markets. And uh, yes, some of it is prohibitively expensive, like the IBM Deep Blue project or whatever the latest supercomputer might be, a Watson or what have you. But, but still, it's known about and we, we, we can see it. And uh, even if you and I can't purchase it directly, we at least know what the latest technology is. Surely there's not some secret weapons program that's so much more advanced behind the scenes. Is there? Well, this often comes down to that moment of incredulity, which has been, again, like so many other moments of incredulity, pre-programmed in the public. It is part of that doublethink that whenever a new piece of gadget or technology is revealed to have existed all this time, the public takes it as given. Oh, well, of course, the government is working on things behind our backs, and it's all for our own good, and it all comes out in time. But whenever 
someone raises this possibility as something that could happen again in the future, that they might one day come out with a new technology that they haven't told us about, people would dismiss it as crazy conspiracy fantasy. No, that can't possibly take place. So this is a bizarre little piece of doublethink, and it, as I say, it has been carefully pre-programmed into people such that uh, they often won't know what types of responses they're giving. They're, they won't consciously think about it, but they will give the same type of responses almost to a man or a woman to uh, to twig the phrase, tweak the phrase a little. Well, we can take a look at some of those responses. For example, the one that I'm sure anyone out there who's tried to uh, to spread these types of ideas before will have heard from other people is that, well, the government can't keep a secret. Everyone knows anything of importance is leaked out almost immediately. And once again, we can look to history for examples of times in which, no, the government was very, 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 very capable of keeping utter secrecy on things of the utmost importance until such time as that secrecy was no longer needed. And the example above all, above all else, is the Manhattan Project. A, a project of just unthinkable size, scope, and uh, importance that was developed in such secrecy that very, very important people in various governments, etc., did not know what was happening and did not know until it was after, until it was in a fait accompli. So let's take a look at just one aspect of the Manhattan Project, because it's something that's been talked about at length, and I'm sure you can look at many of the documentaries that have been produced about that project and how it developed under a cloak of complete secrecy. But here's a little aspect to give even a little bit of modern flavor to that that kind of wonder that the public must have felt when a completely new type of weapon was deployed on the citizen populations of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, and no one had a clue what had happened until it was revealed to them. Well, there's still mystery and wonder about that project that is to this day only beginning to trickle out. And we can even go back to the New York Times, the paper of record from October of 2007 for a little flavor of that from an article called Why They Called It the Manhattan Project. Quote, By nature, code names and cover stories are meant to give no indication of the secrets concealed. Magic was the name for intelligence gleaned from Japanese ciphers in World War II, and Overlord stood for the Allied plan to invade Europe. Many people assume that the same holds true for the Manhattan Project, in which thousands of experts gathered in the mountains of New Mexico to make the world's first atom bomb. Robert S. Norris, a historian of the atomic age, wants to shatter that myth. In The Manhattan Project, from Black Dog and Leventhal, published last month, Dr. Norris writes about the Manhattan Project's Manhattan locations. He says the borough had at least ten sites, all but one still standing. They include warehouses that held uranium, laboratories that split the atom, and the project's first headquarters, a skyscraper hidden in plain sight right across from City Hall. It was super secret, Dr. Norris said in an interview. At least 5,000 people were coming and going to work, knowing only enough to get the job done. Manhattan was central, according to Dr. Norris, because it had everything. Lots of military units, peers for the import of precious ores, top physicists who had fled Europe, and ranks of workers eager to aid the war effort. It even had spies who managed to steal some of the project's top secrets. The story is so rich, Dr. Norris enthused, there's a layer upon a layer of good stuff, interesting characters. Still, more than six decades after the project's start, the Manhattan side of the atom bomb story seems to be a well-preserved secret. 
I will allow you to continue reading that very fascinating article talking about some of those secrets that are only beginning to come out today, again, six decades after the project finished and after those secrets could have no possible conceivable strategic relevance, other than to demonstrate the fact that, yes, governments can keep secrets and they can keep them as long as they need to. And that is the operative point. And that is uh, part of the flaw of that argument that people like to make. Well, governments can't keep secrets. Every secret always comes out and it's always leaked. Well, no, every secret that is leaked is leaked. And so we know about them because they are leaked, but we don't know what we don't know. There are things happening behind the scenes that we have no access to other than what is leaked. So you are basing your evidence on a necessarily limited data set and one that only includes information that has been leaked. So it should give us pause for thought about what types of things are not being leaked to the public. So just one more point on this point, bringing it more up into modern times and not dwelling on the Manhattan Project exclusively, let's turn to someone who should know a thing or two about the secrets that governments can keep, Daniel Ellsberg, aka the leaker of the Pentagon Papers. And he came out a few years ago, actually last year, I should say, with a very interesting quotation that was picked up on by Washington's blog at washingtonsblog.com. Daniel Ellsberg, secrets can be kept reliably for decades, even though they are known to thousands of insiders. Quote, Those accusing Goldman Sachs, Dick Cheney, or some other powerful people of conspiring to enrich their interests are often met with the argument that someone would have spilled the beans if there had really been a conspiracy. But famed whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg explains, It is commonplace that you can't keep secrets in Washington, or in a democracy, no matter how sensitive the secret, you're likely to read it the next day in the New York Times. These truisms are flatly false. They are in fact cover stories ways of flattering and misleading journalists and their readers, part of the process of keeping secrets well. Of course, eventually many secrets do get out that wouldn't in a fully totalitarian society. But the fact is that the overwhelming majority of secrets do not leak to the American public. This is true even when the information withheld is well known to, to an enemy and when it is clearly essential to the functioning of the congressional war power and to any democratic control of foreign policy. The reality unknown to the public and to most members of Congress and the press is that secrets that would be of the greatest import to many of them can be kept from them reliably for decades by the executive branch, even though they are known to thousands of insiders. History proves Ellsberg right. For example, 130,000 people from the US, UK, and Canada worked on the Manhattan Project, but it was kept secret for years. A BBC documentary shows that there was a planned coup in the USA in 1933 by a group of right-wing American businessmen. The coup was aimed at toppling President Franklin D. Roosevelt with the help of half a million war veterans. The plotters, who were alleged to involve some of the most famous families in America, owners of Heinz, Birdseye, Good Tea, Maxwell House, and George Bush's grandfather Prescott, believed that their country should adopt the policies of Hitler and Mussolini to beat the Great Depression. Moreover, the tycoons told General Butler that American people would accept the new government because they controlled all the newspapers. Have you ever heard of this conspiracy before? It was certainly a very large one. And if the conspirators controlled the newspapers then, how much worse is it today with media consolidation? Seven out of the eight giant money center banks went bankrupt in the 1980s during the Latin American crisis, and the government's response was to cover up their insolvency. 
That's a cover-up lasting several decades. Governments have been covering up nuclear meltdowns for 50 years to protect the nuclear industry. Governments have colluded to cover up the severity of numerous other environmental accidents. For many years, Texas officials intentionally underreported the amount of radiation in drinking water to avoid having to report violations. The government's spying on Americans began before 9-11, but the public didn't learn about it until many years later. Indeed, the New York Times delayed the story so that it would not affect the outcome of the 2004 presidential election. The decision to launch the Iraq war was made before 9-11. Indeed, former CIA director George Tenet said that the White House wanted to invade Iraq long before 9-11 and inserted crap in its justifications for invading Iraq. Former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill, who sat on the National Security Council, also says that Bush planned the Iraq war before 9-11. And top British officials say that the U.S. discussed Iraq regime change one month after Bush took office. Dick Cheney apparently even made Iraqis' oil fields a national security policy priority before 9-11, and it has now been shown that a handful of people were responsible for willfully ignoring the evidence that Iraq lacked weapons of mass destruction. These facts have only been publicly disclosed recently. These examples show that it is possible to keep conspiracies secret for a long time without anyone spilling the beans." End quote. Well, again, those are some of the examples that we can point to of things that we now know that we did not know in the past because that information has finally come out. So it does not take a great leap of faith to be able to state with some certainty that there are programs taking place behind government secrecy right now that you and I are not privy to and that we do not know about. But just in case any more information was needed on this front, yes, even from within the U.S. Department of Defense, there have been over the decades since World War II and in times of relative peace that we have now discovered that, oh yes, well, there were some weapons and instruments and pieces of military hardware that we were working on, and we will now allow you to know about them. On the 1st of May, 1965, an American plane designated YF-12A set four world records. One for sustained altitude and three for speed, including a mark of 2,070 miles per hour. While the achievement was hailed in Washington, it did not add any joy to the annual May Day festivities in Moscow. Following the high-profile record-setting flight, the aircraft receded into its customary obscurity. Record-breaking has been the public face of one of history's most mysterious families of aircraft, the Lockheed Blackbirds. These planes were so ahead of their time that radical new methods and materials were developed to build them. The technology they employed and their achievements astounded even the experts of the day. The Blackbirds were so far ahead of their time that they seemed unreal. The planes, and in fact the entire program, was so secret that their existence had not even been suspected. In February 1964, when President Johnson officially revealed the existence of the plane, the experts were astonished and the general public uncomprehending. It was the fastest, stealthiest, 
and the most advanced tactical fighter the world had seen. It was built in complete secrecy by an elite and determined team of men and women in an amazingly short 44 months. The never-before-told story of Northrop Corporation's YF-23 Black Widow II has been highly classified until now. This unusual project became a true journey of human ingenuity. We had to combine stealth, supercruise, and maneuverability all into a unique design, and that had never been done before in a fighter. Oh, well, yes, stealth technology, fighters, that sort of thing. Uh, of course, that, that happened in secret and was released to the public later on. And of course, those programs were kept in relative secrecy from the general public for a long time. But, but that doesn't disprove our assertion that technology doesn't really exist right now that's beyond what we know about. That's, that's, just, uh, that's just past. That's the distant past. Well, let's start taking a look at some of the things that may or may not be happening behind the scenes, even as we speak. And first, let's take a look at a very interesting article about a theoretical technology, theoretical technology that was proposed in PopSci, PopSci.com back in 2004, when they had an article called Rods from God, Space Launch Darts That Strike Like Meteors. Quote, this technology is very far out in miles and years. A pair of satellites orbiting several hundred miles above the Earth would serve as a weapon system. One functions as the targeting and communications platform, while the others carry numerous tungsten rods, up to 20 feet in length and a foot in diameter, that it can drop on targets with less than 15 minutes' notice. When instructed from the ground, the targeting satellite commands its partner to drop one of its darts. The guided rods enter the atmosphere, protected by a thermal coating, traveling at 36,000 feet per second, comparable to the speed of a meteor. The result? Complete devastation of the target, even if it's buried deep underground. The two-platform configuration permits the weapon to be reloaded by just launching a new set of rods rather than replacing the entire system. The concept of kinetic energy weapons has been around ever since the RAND Corporation proposed placing rods on the tips of ICBMs in the 1950s. The satellite twist was popularized by sci-fi writer Jerry Purnell. Though the Pentagon won't say how far along the research is, or even confirm that any efforts are underway, the concept persists. The U.S. Air Force Transformation Flight Plan, published by the Air Force in November 2003, references hypervelocity rod bundles in its outline of future space-based weapons, and in 2002, another report from RAND, Space Weapons Earth Wars, dedicated entire sections of the technologies to these technologies' usefulness. End quote. Well, there's another very interesting idea, and that article goes on to say that this technology is at least 15 years away from coming to fruition. And yet, of course, the U.S. is continuing to send up satellites that we have absolutely no idea what their mission or purpose is, what payload they're carrying, how long they'll be up there, or what their ultimate mission is. So the idea that there are things floating around in uh, orbit right now that uh, that can do all sorts of amazing, wonderful horrific acts of destruction uh, probably should not be too far outside the, the realm of possibility that we will not take that information on board. And again, there's all sorts of information pointing to all sorts of technology that is being worked on behind the scenes that in one way or another has leaked out over the years.
Uh, also, I had to find one time they wanted me to find um, to find out if there was such a thing as um, as a poison that was undetectable, especially one that seemed to uh, mimic a heart attack that would kill someone, but it would it appear that they had a heart attack. I did find such a thing. Does this pistol uh, fire the dart? Yes, it does, Mr. Chairman. And a special one was developed, which potentially would be able to uh, enter the target without perception. The, the poison was frozen into some sort of dart, and then it was shot at uh, very high speed into the person. So at, when it reached the person, it would melt inside them, and the only thing would be like one little tiny red dot on their body, which was hard to detect. There wouldn't be a needle left or anything like that in the person. But also the toxin itself would not appear in the autopsy? Yes, so that uh, there was no, no way of perceiving that the, uh, the target was hit. Imagine the implications of a weapon with no visible trace, a weapon that could knock out tanks, ships, and planes as fast as the speed of light. The same technology with modifications could disorient and even tranquilize military personnel, rendering them virtually helpless in the battle zone. These are the new weapons of war we will examine in this series. For the past 40 years, the world has been riveted by the threat of nuclear war, and more recently by the prospect of space defenses using lasers and other modern technologies. But while both sides at the Geneva summit will be focusing on these matters, progress is being made in even newer weapons that could render any arms agreement relatively useless. Lightning is the most dramatic form of energy to be found in nature. Scientists have succeeded in creating limited types of artificial lightning, and some think that these could be the forerunners of a new type of directed energy weapon, part of a family of weapons which operate within the radio frequency segment of the electromagnetic spectrum, and are thus referred to as radio frequency weapons. Dr. James Frazier has researched electromagnetic effects for the Air Force for over 10 years, and he, like a small but growing number of weapons experts, feels that radio frequency, or RF weapons, could be the wild card in the ongoing arms race. You could have tremendous amounts of radiated power. And uh, what you did with that power, then, is a matter of engineering design and what, what your goal is. They used uh, incredible weapons, absolutely. Experimental weapons? Yeah, I think. Yeah, they, they, they shoot the boss. We saw the boss as a, like a cloth, like a wet cloth. It seems like a Volkswagen. Big boss, like a Volkswagen. This testimony was reported to American filmmaker Patrick Dillon a few weeks after the battle for the airport. The person interviewed, Majid Al-Ghazali, is a well-known and respected man in Baghdad, who is the first violinist in the city orchestra. In addition to describing the battle, Majid Al-Ghazali wanted to show Patrick Dillon the site near the airport where the mysterious weapon was used, along with the traces of fused metal still visible and the irregularly sized ditches where the bodies were buried before they were exhumed. We sought out Majid Al-Ghazali to hear more details of his story. We met up with him in Amman and he pointed out some inexplicable peculiarities on the bodies of the victims of the battle for the airport.
just the head uh, was burned and uh, uh, other, the other parts of the, the bodies wasn't anything that happened on, on it. Al-Ghazali reported that he had seen three passengers in a car, all dead, with their faces and teeth burnt, the body intact, and no sign of projectiles. Uh, there wasn't any, any bullet. I saw they, they teeth, just their teeth, and um, no eyes. Uh, all of them, with the body, nothing for the bodies. Just the teeth and, and uh, all the, uh, I mean, uh, the heads uh, were uh, burned. There were other inexplicable aspects. The terrain where the battle took place was dug up by the American military and replaced with other fresh earth. The bodies that were not hit by projectiles had shrunk to just slightly more than one meter in height. All of these technologies are fascinating and they all deserve much more exploration. So I hope you will pick up those threads from the links that I provide in the documentation section for today's episode to start exploring these for yourself and some of the related uh, conjectures about where these technologies are and where they're coming from and how they're being developed and what stage they're at at this point and how they're being deployed, etc., But at this point, so much of it is conjecture because, unfortunately, this veil of secrecy has been erected in the name of national security. And, unfortunately, there is so much happening behind the scenes that we don't know about and that we don't even know that we don't know about, to echo Rumsfeld's assertion, that it's hard to even know where to begin separating the conjecture and the speculation and the false accusations and the uh, the blind alleys that lead to nowhere from the real information. And unfortunately, the one key part of this whole matrix that the the founding fathers of the United States had envisioned would be the final check of, on the power of a government to do this type of thing behind the people's back and without them knowing was the free and independent press. It was the one p- profession that was enshrined in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights at any rate, to, uh, to be that, that check on government and its uh, powers cannot be abrogated or, or infringed upon. The right of uh, free speech is enshrined in the First Amendment specifically for this type of a problem because obviously the, the press has to act as some sort of check or balance on that power that the government has to act in secrecy and develop all this sort of thing. So really, the people who should be, theoretically, in an ideal system, telling us about this and asking the hard questions and digging up the facts and putting their noses into this are the people in the media who are supposed to be digging up this information and who do have the access to the people involved in these programs. But it's funny how this all worked out, because it turns out that the people who have the power uh, to, to participate and to lead and to be part of these programs only grant access to those journalists who are willing to play ball with them. Like, for example, Bob Woodward. Woodward reports for the first time that there is a secret behind the success of the surge, a sophisticated and lethal special operations program. This is very sensitive and very top secret, but there are secret operational capabilities that have been developed by the military to locate, target, and kill leaders of al-Qaeda in Iraq, insurgent leaders, renegade militia leaders that uh, is one of the true 
breakthroughs. But what are we talking about here? Is some kind of surveillance, some kind of targeted way of taking out just the people that you're looking for, the leadership of the enemy? I'd love to go th through the details, uh, but I'm not going to. The details, Woodward says, would compromise the program. For a reporter, you don't allow much. Well, no, it's not. I, it's with reluctance. From what I know about it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you go back to any war, World War One, World War II, the role of the tank and the airplane, and it is the stuff of which um, military novels are written. Do you mean to say that this special capability is such an advance in military technique and technology that it reminds you of the advent of the tank and the airplane? Yeah, if you were an Al-Qaeda leader or part of the uh, uh, insurgency in Iraq or one of these renegade militias and you knew about what they were able to do, you'd get your ass out of town. Now, what are these new techniques? What can you tell us? Because of national security, you're not going to say specifically what they are. Can you categorize what kind of developments these are that you believe, that you report, have led to a reduction in violence and a greater ability to go after al-Qaeda in Iraq? It, it, it's a big deal. You think about the Manhattan Project in World War II developing the atomic bomb. Uh, it was all secret. All of a sudden, two bombs are dropped in Japan and, and it's the end of the war. These techniques and operations you're not going to see or hear but uh, they are lethal and effective. Uh, I know a lot of the details about it. Uh, a four-star general I went uh, and talked to about this, uh, the blood literally drained from his face, and uh, he didn't make because, a request. Because you knew about them. Yes. That's why he was so shocked. And, and he, uh, he did not make a request that it be withheld. He said, you cannot write about this. Well, Bob Woodward knows about this secret weapons technology that was deployed in Iraq, and he knows all about it. He knows all the details and what it involves and how it's as important as the Manhattan Project or the development of the airplane. It's such an amazing leap forward, but he's not going to tell you about it. I mean, what? That wouldn't help him sell books. It'd probably get him killed. So he'll just, he'll just reveal enough to say that there's something really big there. Hey, buy my book. And then he'll scarper off and... Go uh, reap the monetary rewards of a life well lived. Well, that is the epitome of the problem. That is exactly what it is we are facing. We are facing a system in which one of the supposed checks on the power of the government to, uh, to operate in impunity and in secrecy is actively and openly colluding with that power. Oh, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. So that is absolutely disgusting and a complete abdication of journalistic responsibility. But what else would one ex expect from the system as it's been erected? Of course, as viewers and listeners to my reports in recent times will know that I don't think that any government is ever going to be able to be kept in check by any process. I think government itself is an abuse of power and is itself immoral from the get-go. So I don't think that that's something that we can ever really attain and it's not an ideal we should be striving for. Oh, let's keep the government in check. Oh, let's keep the government in check. I think that's a pipe dream. But at the very least, given that we are in this system right now and it's unlikely that we're about to evolve into a stateless society overnight, 
one would hope there would at least be a few journalists out there with a little bit of an inkling of that kindling of the fire of the journalistic spirit to actually put these politicians' feet to the fire and ask them questions that really matter. And once in a while, once in a while, you'll get a journalist who actually presses on one of these issues. And when it comes with in between a bunch of softball questions, sometimes it can catch these politicians so off guard they don't even know that they're being asked a real question and they actually almost start to answer it. Right, Rummy? Can, can I ask you a question about some of the technology that you're developing to fight the war on terror, specifically directed energy and high-powered microwave technology? Do you, uh, when do you envision that you can weaponize that type of technology? Goodness. Um, it is. It is in, for the most part, the kinds of things you're talking about are in varying early stages. Do you want to? Do you have anything you'd add? I don't think I would add much. I. Yeah. I, it's, I think they are in early stages and 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 probably not ready uh, for employment at this point. In in the normal order of things, when you invest in research and development and begin a developmental project. Uh, you don't have any intention or expectations that one would use it. Uh, on the other hand, the real world intervenes from time to time and you reach in there and take something out that is still in a developmental stage and you might use it. So it, the ans I, it's not, your question is not answerable. It, is, it, is, uh, it depends on what happens in the future and how, how well things move along the track and whether or not someone feels it's appropriate to reach into a development stage and see if something might be useful, as was the case with the unmanned aerial vehicles. But you sound like you're willing to experiment with it. I, I think that's the point. And I think, and it's, we, we have, I think, from the beginning of this conflict, I think General Franks has been very open to looking at uh, new things if there are new things available and has been been willing to, to put them into the fight even before they've been fully wrung out. And I think that's uh, not referring to these two particular cases of directed energy or, or high-powered microwave, uh, but, but sure. And, yes. and we will continue to do that. Oh, what a beautiful thing it can be when a journalist actually does his job and actually asks a question that makes an official feel a little uncomfortable. And you'll note that because that question came in a process of softball questions being lobbed at Rummy, that uh, that it goes into just rote, uh, rote memorization and answering time, that, uh, that that one almost slipped through, and Rummy almost started to really answer that question. And, uh, of course, he spun it off and ended up not really answering it in the end, but... At any rate, there was that moment when, at the very least, there were responsible, intelligent, capable adults openly discussing something that in any other context would have been instantly dismissed as, oh, crazy conspiracy theory, crazy conspiracy theory. So it does show that journalists do have a role and they can actually use their, their role in, at times when they are granted access to the corridors of power to actually ask questions that matter. But I wouldn't expect it in our current media paradigm, and I don't think we should be waiting on that journalistic savior that's going to come along and blow the doors down on whatever secret weapons technology is being constructed behind the scenes. I'm sure there are a thousand Bob Woodwards for every journalist like that one we just listened to. So, unfortunately, and... Well, where, where else is it ever going to end up? It ends up in your hands, in my hands, in our collective hands, as we, the citizen journalist independent alternative media movement, have to pick up the slack and start looking for the pieces of the puzzle. And there are lots of blind alleys and dead ends and rabbit trails that lead to nowhere. But unfortunately, 
what else can we do but try to pick through them to come at the truth? So there's a lot of work to be done, and it can't all be done by myself. I certainly hope that people out there are also doing this research and finding out things that are of interest. And because we have this incredible crowdsourcing information technology at our fingertips and virtually, uh, well, not exactly free of charge, but uh, basically available to, to most people in the developed world, this is an incredible time to live and to be able to pool our resources and our capabilities to come together and to at least open that veil, just lift that curtain a little bit to get a peek at what's going on behind the closed doors. And if nothing else, we should at all times be aware that not only are there things that we know that we don't know, there are things that we don't know that we don't know. And we don't know what's happening behind that veil of government secrecy. So it is something to keep in mind. And when and if the next big weapon is unleashed on the public and strikes fear and awe into human civilization, I think we should be aware that, yes, it was being developed behind your back, most likely in over the course of decades. And, of course, on the back of the taxpayer who is supporting the entire system. So, once again, something to cogitate on. But I will leave it there, and I would, of course, like to hear all of your thoughts and your own research into this. You can always contact me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com or phone in to Corbett Report Radio live on air. And on that note, I'm going to have to leave it there. I'm going to have to get back to burning the copies of The Last Word DVD. So once again, if you haven't got your order in, I suggest you do so now. And I will leave it there for now. So I am James Corbett of The Corbett Report, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week. Come